Our DT Systems, the Wrap 1400 or 1400 if you like doing it that way, but it's the Wrap 1400. It's a collar that is super reliable, ready to rock, and it's super handy because you can hold it in your hand while you're shooting your shotgun during duck season. So it's a cool unit for you and your dog come hunting season so that you've got control over any situation. Anything the dog throws at you during the hunt is right there, easy and accessible. Bingo, bango, bongo. If you don't want that one, check out the H. 201820. It's the DT Systems and it's dog tested, dog tough. Hashtag man's best kennel. It's Gunner Kennels, baby. It's a kit. We had Addison on the, the podcast, a phenomenal dude, always innovating our industry. And one of the things that he brought up is it's a kit. It's not just the kennel itself. You've got the fan 2.0 for your summer, right? Like it's hot out. We got to keep that dog cool. In wintertime, you got the all weather kit. Keeps that poor body temperature in there so the dog doesn't have to work as hard to stay warm. They also have the magnetic door accessory that keeps that body temperature in there. And then the straps. Everybody thinks like, oh, I'll just go to Home Depot and get the cheapo straps. Well, listen, they developed these straps so that basically you can lift a VW bug with the two straps. So if you were to get in a car accident on the way to the duck blind or the training grounds, that dog is going to be beyond strapped and stay safe. Check it out. Gunner Kennels, baby. Slide into the DMs. We'll hook you up. It's force fetch, baby. It's the number one question we get asked. You don't know how to fix it? Let me help you. Let me get you to your goals. We built a course bunch of videos. I think there's 13 or 14 videos start to finish on how you and your dog can get through the force fetch process successfully. The link's in the description. Be sure to check it out and let me help you and your dog. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, Casey, welcome to the show. Really excited to have you. Do me a favor. Tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Okay. What's up, guys? My name is Casey Everett. I am a falconer from uh, New York, and I catch all different kinds of quarry with a bird of prey, and that's uh, pretty much my gimmick. That's my thing. That's what I do. That's what I love. That's what I'm passionate about. I uh, fill my freezer every year with different uh, game species, rabbits, Squirrels, ducks, sometimes geese, depending on the mood of the bird that I'm flying. And uh, yeah, it's my passion. It's what I do. And uh, I'm happy to be here. That's awesome. So I thought you were from New Jersey. Dude, so I'm from New Jersey. <laughs> we just moved. We just moved to New York. We saved up our money. We got out of a very congested area with a lot of people. And we're looking at different places in New Jersey that have more space, more acreage. And it just so happened that the taxes for four acres in New York was cheaper than the taxes in New Jersey. And we pulled the trigger and now I live in New York, but I'm still New Jersey Falcon. Right? So that's all it. right. All right. Well, I, welcome to New York where the players play. Yeah, I guess so. I'm playing. <laughs> and I'm shocked that our taxes are smaller. Yeah, it's out of control. You're a new, you guys are in New York too? 
Yeah, we're north of Syri- or like Syracuse area. Oh, I got it. Okay, yeah, it's like I think that's I want to say it's like three. I'm in Warwick. It's like three hours from you. Yeah, I know where Warwick is. I went and to college with some people from. Yeah, got it. Okay. I went to college somewhere else, but kids I went to college and played rugby with were from there. Got so, it. Okay. So cheers to the Warwick. World. I'm gonna say Warwick cheers. Warriors. Just throwing it out yeah, there, it sounds know. like they'd be the Warriors. Yeah, it would be fitting. I would, I would, I imagine. would imagine. Sounds nice. Rolls off the tongue. <laughs> it did. All right, man. So, uh, you know, scrolling through your Instagram, you 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 had a couple of videos that went viral. Um, you have a, and I'm gonna let you describe the the bird of prey itself, but it's white. I don't know if it's fully albino or if it's right. you know a certain pigment of it or whatever it would be, but it went viral of this white freaking hawk taking out a mallard duck and the, and like every duck hunter was in awe across the country. Like, this is super cool. That was your video and your bird. Walk us through who that bird is and how it made you who you are on Instagram, if you will. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. So that bird, that was a bird that I raised from a chick, uh, from a private, uh, breeding facility. You need all kinds of special permits to buy these birds, especially in captivity. Um, so I purchased her, raised her, uh, from a, from a chick all the way up to an adult. And, um, she, for whatever reason, this bird loved to smash ducks in the water. Like a lot of these birds. So she's a North American, well, she's a goshawk. So it's G O S H A W K. So it's a goshawk. They are a circumpolar species that's found throughout the whole entire world. So there's a latitude band around the entire earth. And they're found in every in in basically every country in that latitude band. There's a goshawk subspecies, or like we have the North American goshawk, and they are a uh, they're a very reclusive uh, bird of prey. They don't like to be uh, around people. People will rare, rarely ever see them, and uh, they take everything that moves under the sun. They are extremely fast. They can move. So if I flush ducks off of a pond and they are flying at full speed, he can catch up to them and pull one out of the air in about, I mean, I haven't even timed it, but I mean, in about, you know, two seconds. And uh, they're very explosive, very um, athletic and and, uh, agile. And she's a subspecies from Siberia. So that's why she's white. So in Siberia, believe it or not, there are hawks that are killing ducks killing ptarmigan, uh, squirrels, rabbits, hares, um, grouse in, in, uh, you know, in, a, in, in Russia and around and the surrounding countries in that latitude band, there's a subspecies that looks like her, but so she's not an, an anomaly. She's a, a naturally occurring, um, I guess an adaptation you would call it that makes her white, which helps her to blend in with the snow. That's super so, cool. Yeah. That's super yeah, so cool. she loves ducks. She loves ducks. And um, I, so just for a little backstory, I've been flying birds of prey for about going on 18 years now. And um, and this bird, for whatever reason, a lot of birds are not necessarily like her. She found success early in birds of prey. When they find success in something, they'll continue to do it. So if you've seen a red-tailed hawk sitting on the side of the road in a, on a telephone pole or on a tree just staring at the grass, they have found success sitting there quietly and then waiting for something to walk underneath them and they fall out of the tree and grab it. So this goshawk that I raised has found success with 
grabbing a duck out of the water and then swimming it to the shore and then I'll help dispatch it and then she gets to eat from it and then whatever's left over I take home with us you know for the freezer so she had a specific personality and she really enjoyed uh doing that almost every single time I took her out for ducks <laughs> so it was pretty entertaining I, I I my mind's racing with questions so just uh bear with me so uh and maybe you said this what's her name her name was Karen, like a Karen. Right on. <laughs> yeah, she, right. she had she well she she was she was a Karen. So she would if you look at my Instagram, there was some videos of her early on in her training where she was extremely aggressive and defensive of her food, and she would attack me and go after me and and scream and yell and and make a big commotion with me around, um, and that's just the way they're programmed in the wild because as a falconer. You have to work with the bird's natural uh, natural abilities and what's inside of them genetically, and you kind of get the good with the bad. So I didn't really have to force her to go after ducks or anything like that. That's in their DNA to do that. But also, these are birds that spend 90% of the year by themselves until they find a mate during the spring. But other than that, they're completely alone, and they don't want anything to do with any other hawk, and they just want to kill and eat and kill and eat. And that's what they do. So as a falconer, you kind of have to go through these stages of development and work through behavioral issues to get the end result, which is a bird that will smash a mallard in the middle of a giant swamp and then swim it to the to the shore, um, you know, and then for me to help dispatch it. And just a little backstory on that clip. I don't know how viral, viral it went. I mean, people were knocking it off and 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 posting it as if it was theirs all over, you know, TikTok and Instagram and, and Facebook. But so that bird, we were hunting rabbits initially, and she flew out into this giant swamp. Like I'm talking like a mile across of just swamp beaver habitat. And I saw her on my GPS system um, going, you know, 50 miles an hour down and landing and 50 miles an hour. So she was chasing these ducks and there was hundreds of different ducks, mergansers, black ducks, mallards, you know, all these different birds out there. And she's, I see her off in the distance chasing it. So I ran back to my truck, got my waders, which I always keep. I learned my lessons. I keep my waders in my truck, ran all the way back to the edge of the swamp, pulled my waders up, left some stuff on the bank and then trudged all the way out into this swamp, which at some points was over my waders and I had to pull myself up. And uh, eventually I noticed on the GPS that it stopped moving. So that either meant she was sitting somewhere, which I was swinging what we call the lure, which is a leather piece, a piece of leather that's on a long string that you swing in a circular motion, which signals the bird to be, to be recalled back to you. I didn't get any response. So I continued on into this swamp and it's, you know, it's getting late. And, uh, I mean, it literally took me about a half an hour, 45 minutes to get out to her climbing over logs. And I, I approach, climb up out of the, the water onto this island, and I see her just floating. So then I just, as, my, as I normally do, I just pulled out my lure, put it on the ground, and whistled. And she just turned and just, okay, there's my reward. And she just, she was sitting there. She must have been sitting there waiting for me and just began to swim back to the shore bringing this full-grown, you know, Drake Mallard with her, which was already dead because she drowned it, back to the shore. And then she traded in the video, if anyone's, you know, seen the video, it, it, it's, a, it's a, she's going, she's trading off what we call, she's trading off to my lure, 
and then allowing me to take the the duck into my possession and then I hold it up for the camera to see uh, because nice. it was a pretty unique situation. So that's the backstory in the video, just for you guys. Dude, that's awesome. Well, thank you. I want to take a back. I want to take a second. Let's. Okay. Th- there are so many things that like we don't know. So I, I right. want to take the time to explain your your craft and and like even just start how you got started. It you said you've been doing this for eighteen years. What made you want to get into this? Was it a a mentor or a person? How did you get started? Yeah, that's a good question. So basically, I was a I was a homeschooled kid. My mom, uh, you know, had us. You know, she would use different techniques to teach us. And, you know, let's say for biology class, you know, we would go to the woods instead of sitting in a classroom, she would take us to the woods and we'd collect, you know, uh, leaves and different bark and we would identify them and do all different kinds of things. So uh, as a homeschooled mom, she would always try to incorporate different things into our curriculum to try to use it as a teaching moment. And she would read all these different articles in these books and uh, subsequently, subsequently, she found a article in, I think it may have been Outdoor Life magazine um, about about a woman named Teddy Moritz, a field and stream magazine about a woman named Teddy Moritz who actually bred my dog and that her experience with falconry and birds of prey. And uh, so my mom, one day while we were walking, a red tailed hawk flew over our heads and my mom uh, she, she said, and we're all look, we're looking at it. You know, we're, we're looking, we're identifying what the bird is. It's an adult because it has a red tail. It's probably a female because of how large it is. And we're, you know, we're doing the biology thing. And my mom goes, you know, I read an article where you can actually have one of those with special licensing and you can train it to hunt with you and catch stuff together. I thought she was full of it. I, I'm like, this is like, Lord of the Rings, you know, like some Narnia stuff. Like there's no way that this is like a real thing that people can really do. So we go home. It's 2005, you know, 2004, whatever. There's no real, like, you know, there's no social media presence. There's no Facebook groups. There's, you can't type in hashtag Falconry and find a million videos. <laughs> it was like, you had to kind of look for it. And uh, sure enough. Yeah. There was, there's Falconers. There's a, a Falconry club. You know, in New Jersey, there's a Falcon Club in California, there's a Falcon Club here, and they have literature on how to get started. And okay, the first step is to call the DNR, you know, the the you know, the Division of uh, Natural Resources and and ask them what's involved. So we called the DEC, we asked them what's involved. They uh, we they get a lot of calls and I get a lot of you know messages from people that are interested. Everybody, most people think it's a cool thing. Um, but the barrier ent- barrier to entry is pretty intense. You have to build an eight by eight facility with an extension uh, cage that's attached to it that almost reaches uh, zoo level, um, you know, specs. In order to pass an inspection, you have to get somebody to sponsor you, and then there's a written test that you have to pass. So it they kind of try to discourage you, and I was only like I think I was twelve at the time when I really became interested in this. And uh, so I went down the rabbit hole. We called the local club. The club gave us numbers of people in our area and uh, Paul and Phil Elia that were, they were generous enough to take me out on a hunt. Took me and my mom, of course, my mom came with me. We went on our first hunt and it was like the most spectacular thing we've ever seen. And it, it just, uh, 
it's just at that moment, I mean, I don't know if like any of the listeners or you guys have like a, a moment in your life where you did something that was like, I am, I, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And this yeah. is so special and so cool. And that was pretty much the moment that I had when I watched this hunt take place in front of me and, and seeing the you know, the gentleman whistle the hawk to come back to him, then release it back and then chasing all different things around. And then having basically the bird was paying no mind to him and just kind of, we were just there kind of experiencing a wild uh, chase without um, necessarily, you know, uh, being affecting the chase. Meaning like if you're watching like a cougar taking down like a mule deer and you're like, you're able to kind of like run along with them and watch without the cougar caring. And it's just like, you get to experience this amazing thing that most people don't see. Yes. It's graphic. Yes. It's gruesome. Something's dying, but something else is living because of it. So there's kind of, there's all kinds of things that I deal with as a, I mean, I don't really have that many followers, but as somebody who gets, you know, a, a public view of me, I, I have to kind of fight against these things. And it's, I have to keep telling people that it is a natural occurrence and it's, it, it's, it, it is in, in its own way, a beautiful thing that we get to experience, you know, every single day, as many times as I go out with my birds. Sure. So what was your first bird of prey that you got? Okay. So in most States, you have to have a red-tailed hawk as your first bird. It's a juvenile bird. We are not allowed to trap adult birds. We are only allowed to trap the juvenile birds to be used in falconry. There's all kinds of permits and licensing that goes involved with this. And uh, some states allow you to have different birds. Other states, you can have an American kestrel, I believe. And then some other states, you can have whatever you want as long as it's not an imprint, meaning it's not a chick that you're raising. So each state is different. You have to consult with your your local agency to figure out what is um, allowed or what's not allowed. Um, so I started with a red tail hawk. Uh, I trapped me and my brother. I didn't have a license at the time. I was, uh, I think by the time I got my license, I was 13. Uh, it's 2006. I got my, uh, got my permit to go out and, and trap a wild red tail hawk, which was like an amazing feeling that I, I actually had the government's permission to trap a wild bird to use for this ancient sport of falconry. And I had no driver license. So my older brother, which was That's super, uh, super cool. Generous I can't even, I can't even keep my composure. That's like the coolest damn thing. Yeah. I want to hear how you even <laughs> like, trap, how did you, tra- how yes. you trap them too. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's another question that I get like a lot is how you trap a bird. And it's kind of a funky uh, question to answer as a falconer, because we don't normally like to disclose how that is done uh, to try to, you know, to try to deter people from trapping right, birds and illegally that's keeping fair. them and animal abuse and all this crap. I mean, we've, we've heard, I've heard stories that I make your skin crawl of, of people just being uh, just completely oblivious and disrespectful. And nowadays you can type in, you know, a trap online, you can trap in how to trap a hawk and a million videos and, you know, Google searches will come up with, with all different kinds of stuff. So basically the method that I used to trap my first bird was a wire cage, uh, roughly 12 inches long by eight inches wide, give or take. And it has fishing, fishing line nooses all over the top of it. Like picture a noose, like you'd hang somebody with, but it's made out of fishing line, like hundred pound test fishing line. And it's tied all over the top, standing straight up. You put a rat inside of there 
and the way that me and my brother did it was we went to it was actually a cemetery believe it or not and there was all these red-tailed hawks that would sit on top of the the pine trees waiting for rabbits to dart in between the gravestones so i noticed one i identified it with my binoculars it's a it's a juvenile looks like a female a nice big one all right we'll throw the trap out so we make a u-turn I put the trap on the grass, keep driving. Before we even left, like the tailgate even went by the trap, this bird is in the air coming down on a on a what we call a stoop, meaning her wings are tucked and she's going towards the ground at a high rate of speed and then just smacks the cage and starts footing the rat, trying to get the rat, but it's a cage that's separating her from the rat so she can't get to it. And then as she's doing this motion of trying to grab the rat with her feet, her feet are subsequently getting caught in the nooses. The cage is weighted down with different, you know, various weights. There's no, you know, there's no wrong way to do it as long as the cage is, you know, heavy enough so the bird can't fly away with it. We pulled over. I saw that she was caught. And when they get caught, they get a little, you know, they want to kind of get out of there. So I realized she was caught. So we ran back. I gently put what we call a hood over her head, which blocks out her eyes and allows her to be in a state of they're never really calm in that scenario, but when they're not visually stimulated, because all they know is visual stimulus, when they're not visually stimulated, they become very calm. So I put a hood over the bird's head immediately, remove the the nooses from her feet, and then we wrap her in a towel while I'm holding her feet, because her feet will punch holes in you, which you don't really want. Um, and then we, I called my sponsor on my brother's cell phone. I, didn't even, I don't even think I had a cell phone at the time. And my, we called them and we said, we got one. And they said, no way. And so we drove over and, um, and then we began the process of putting all of the equipment on their feet. Um, and that was pretty much my first experience, you know, trapping my first red tail hawk. So that first off, that's fantastic and phenomenal. <laughs> yeah, how, got this, I, how I have a million, old, you know, when you say juvenile, when do they become quote-unquote mature, a year old? Like, how old do you suspect yes. this bird was? <clears throat> okay, so a, a red-tailed hawk, even though the, the, the description is in the name that they're a red-tailed hawk, they don't get their red tail until they're a year old. So meaning the bird is hatched in the spring, it grows up, it leaves the nest, it hunts, it kills, and then it, 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 I trap it. So it doesn't have a red tail. So when a bird is first leaving the nest... Its tail is not red. It's brown with black barring on it. And from state to state and region to region, they look slightly different depending on the subspecies, et cetera. So you can kind of clearly see that the chest markings and the tail markings, it's not an adult. An adult is a, it's a much more, uh, I don't want to say beautiful, but a much more beautiful version of the immature. It has a, a dark, beautiful red tail with one black bar that goes across the bottom and then they their eyes turn from like a, a whitish light color to a like a dark brown almost jet black color and they're very striking to look at so you can kind of tell the difference um so you it is it's not immediately noticeable but it, it's pretty obvious that they're that they're juveniles at that point so this thing is roughly four to six months old roughly yes exactly okay we get its leg stuff on it. Can you describe yeah. the leg stuff? Is it like yeah? Describe uh, the leg put, stuff. Put that's like a good. collar on a dog, if you will, or no? Yeah. So yeah, that's the, that's yes. It's exactly that, and that's what 
that's another thing that I get attacked for is it's, oh, you're keeping the bird as a, you know, it's, it, you're, you're holding it with a leash. And I mean, so then, so then it, it, if at that point, anybody who walks their dog down the street on a leash is abusing their dog. So it's the same concept. It's, it's leather straps that go around the leg and they're clasped together with a grommet. And then the grommet has a hole in it and a grommet, just so those that are listening, that are not following along. If you ever see like a tarp, like a blue tarp, they usually have a grommet on the corners so you could put a bungee cord or something through it. So it's something that's a grommet. And we use one of those to clasp the leather around their legs. It's loose enough that it can slide up and down freely, like a collar on a dog, not too tight. Mm -hmm. We slide what's called a Jess through that. The Jess is a strip of leather with a button on the end and has a hole or a slit in the opposite end that you would then attach a swivel. There's a lot of swivels involved in falconry because birds can get tangled. And we tie those in to the bottom of the jesses, one on one leg, one on the other leg, matching. And then we're able to use the leash to then tie the bird to either a glove or a perch um, for their safety and protection. Otherwise, they could just you know fly away or fly into a wall or a window or whatever the case may be. So that's okay. part of the whole process. And my argument is that you use a collar and a leash on your dog every day and it's, they just get used to it. They just, they don't even notice it after a certain point. And that's the beauty with taking a bird that's younger is they're in their nest. Their parents are feeding them. You know, a raven is flying, flying by screaming at them. They're, they're, they're visually seeing that and, and being aware of that. Then they're fledging. Then they're flying around the the area around the nest, exploring. They're seeing different stimulus. They're seeing a cow. They're seeing a horse. They're seeing a, a farm around a tractor. They're getting stimulus. Then they're hunting and then they're catching and killing things on their own. And then this monkey person <laughs> pricks them and catches them. And then they, then when you bring them home, you offer them food in a quiet, peaceful, dark place. And then they, they just kind they kind of just go, Oh, this is okay. This is part of the, I didn't like the tractor. I didn't like the horse. I don't like this person, but Oh, here's the food. Oh, okay. I can get, and then they just kind of get used to it. And they naturally it's bizarre. It, it is bizarre how quick some of these birds just start eating the food from us, start the training process and are out hunting within weeks. It's, it is fascinating how, how it works that way. That's so, so cool. So one of the things that we like to ask people when we have like uh, working dog people on the show or really yeah. just any dog trainer, like a good bite story. Everybody's always gotten bit, right? <laughs> yeah. Do, do you yeah. have a good, um, uh, I, I got whacked by a bird story? I sure do. Yeah. So actually <laughs> the first, so I trained my hawk. I went through the process got it fr flying free, completely free of, of any restrictions, took it to my local field. It was actually a woodlot near my house where there was a million squirrels. And I knew I could get a squirrel to show up so my bird would chase it, and I'll naturally chase it. I had no telemetry, no GPS. I didn't have any money for that. I, I rode my bike to the field that I was going to. So I didn't, you know, I didn't even have money for a car. I was, you know, I was, I was a 14-year-old kid. So I didn't, nobody was around. So I went. Bird ends up disappearing for a little while. I heard her bells, which was part of the equipment. We put bells on them so we can hear them where they are. And uh, I see her at the base of a tree holding a squirrel. The squirrel was dead by that point. And I ran in to try to, like, grab the squirrel so it wouldn't bite her because I was always taught, like, the squirrel couldn't bite the hawk. So you want to kind of grab the head and control it so that the hawk doesn't get bit. 
and then dispatch it. The squirrel's already dead, but I was like a you know a new you know a newbie into the sport, so I stuck my hand in there. This bird doesn't know what's going on. All it knows is when I catch something, everything around me tries to steal it from me. So protect it. So I stick my hand in like a dummy. It's freezing cold out, mind you. And the bird just takes one big giant talon, like its whole foot, and just grabs my whole hand. And the talons just sink right into my right into my skin, right to the bone, blood pouring out. And I just froze. I didn't really know what to do. My adrenaline was going because of how excited I was that my bird actually caught something. Yeah. So I didn't really even notice the pain, but I just knew that it, it hurt and it wasn't a good situation. And if I freaked out and started going crazy, it wouldn't be a good situation. So I just calmly sat there and then took my other hand, which was free, and wiggled the squirrel. And then she took the foot off of me and grabbed the squirrel. And then I had, you know, giant holes in my hand. That's freaking awesome. <laughs> With blood blood dripping all over the place. You know, it's like five degrees outside. You can imagine how bad that must have hurt. Bismuth. Hey, did you know that bismuth weighs more than steel? It's kind of a no-brainer, but maybe you didn't know that little fun fact. So what that means is you can shoot a smaller size than if you were to be shooting steel. So for instance, let's say you shot three-inch threes, which I used to shoot before I shot bismuth. I now shoot fives. That means you've got more BBs in each shell going down range that packs the same or more punch. So more BBs down range means more likelihood of hitting the duck. And with that bismuth, more likely that that duck is going down better than doornail. You and your dog get the retrieve. Bingo, bango, bongo. Bismuth by Kent. From the duck blind to the holding blind, baby, it's Purina. Our young dogs are eating the puppy blend. Large breed puppy formula should be fed to puppies from eight weeks when you get that little bundle of joy home, that little cuddly wuddly buddy, all the way to about a year old. We want that dog to develop at a good, consistent rate. We don't want them to grow too fast, too soon. And so that puppy formula is going to help accomplish that goal. It's going to give them all the nutrients to develop their bones, their joints, their ligaments, everything right. Feed that puppy formula till 12 months old and then flippity-floppity to the 30-20 pro plan. So were you riding your bike with the that hawk That was going to be my flying? next question. <laughs> or were you like arm yeah. out, one-handed, hawk in the other hand? I, I've done it all. I'll tell you that I've done it all. So, but the, the my go-to method for riding my bike with my with my hawk was I would put the hood on their head, so they're like we discussed earlier, they're not visually stimulated, and I would rest my hand on the handlebar and my other hand on the brake on the right side, and then I would just slowly ride, you know, to to where I'm going. And the bird, you know, doesn't really necessarily like Killing. the breeze, so I'd have to kind of go a little slow. And then when I get there, I would just take the hood off the bird's head, unclip her from the leash, and then put my arm in the air. And she knew the drill and just would take off because of our training. And she would just fly off into the woods. But yeah, once I got my license, it was like a complete, it was a relief to get my license. Because then I could just go anywhere I wanted, any spot I thought of I could go to. It was like freedom in the true sense of the word. How do you travel with your birds in the car now? Because I imagine you don't just like let them free free willy in the car while you're driving yeah yeah i just let my birds loose in the car they they crap yeah, we get the windows car. are up they're they not going anywhere <laughs> they smash into the windows they grab me with their talons when they're mad. no i'm just kidding so we what we do is we have a uh what we call the giant hood so if you're not hooding the bird and you're and you're transporting it even if you're hooding the bird we usually put it in what we, what we call a giant hood and that's a box with a perch in it a rectangle box that's roughly 
whatever bird you're, you're transporting, you like to give them a little space on each side of their wings. So about two inches on either side. So if the bird is just, for example, if the bird is whatever, uh, nine inches across shoulder to shoulder, you would give them, you know, 12 inches, 13 inches, roughly of space in the box. Uh, you know, nobody quote me on this, but, and then you give them space under the perch for their tail and then clearance in the back of the box for their tail to go up and down as you go over bumps and you're turning corners, et cetera. And then you, you train them to sit in that box calmly when you're transporting. So that's, that's what I do. And all these different, there's all different companies nowadays that, that, um, that make these boxes, you know, uh, you know, on a commercial level and you can, you can buy them and order them and have them delivered to your house, et cetera. You know, Very so. cool. Um, all right. I still got a bunch of questions. These are great stories and rabbit holes that I'm enjoying going down. So normally I don't even have questions written down, but I just wanted to make sure I didn't miss anything. Um, so your first bird is the red tail hawk. Yep. How long did you have that bird? And then, you know, how, what was the process of getting new birds and different birds and how many do you have now? That's a great question. So basically, so I had that bird for roughly a year after, uh, there's no, there's no rule or law that tells you whether you can, uh, keep a bird for X amount of time or not. You can keep a bird for its whole lifespan. It's, it's the way it works. Just so all the listeners can understand it's the state's property, the federal government's property, the same way a duck is under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, and you have to follow specific regulations on when you can shoot them, and you can't just keep mallard ducks as a pet in your backyard. It's the same concept with birds of prey. They're they're covered under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, so you can't just possess them uh, willy-nilly. The falconry license allows us as falconers to possess the bird and then take care of the bird, but at the end of the day, if we break the law... If something happens, the bird can then be taken away from us. So we're basically passing all these tests and going through this whole process to be able to get the the state's permission to entrust these birds in our care. So I don't know if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. you can keep a bird for its whole life legally with no issues. And I know guys that have flown their birds for close to 30 years and they just go out, they catch squirrels, they go home. That's what they've been doing for 30 years. No big deal. Um so, but for me in the beginning, my sponsor wanted me to really learn. So he, he said, okay, you did good with that one. You caught, and it was, you know, I'm not like, it, when I was young, I was really competitive. And I asked him, what was the amount of game that you caught with your first bird? He said, I think we caught like 80 head a game. So I made it my life's mission to catch more than him. So I ended up catching like 87 head a game that season with a red tail hawk in my first year. And after that, he did, okay, so you did great. The bird was great and perfect health. So during the spring, during what we call the malt, where they drop all their feathers and grow new ones, we fatten the birds up and we release them. And then they go right back into the wild. And within a week or two, they are not even a week or two, to be honest. They revert right back into their wild state of mind. And they just go right back to hunting and catching like they did when they were just leaving the nest. And and the only difference is, is that bird now has the skills and and level of wisdom to understand okay if i fly down by that that you know chain link fence and go after the squirrel on the other side i'm going to hit that fence and get knocked out i learned that lesson with this falconer guy 
oh, okay, if I don't if I don't corkscrew around this tree catching the squirrel, I'm gonna miss it. And I'm gonna go hungry. I learned it with this guy. So basically, we get an opportunity to train these birds allow them to do what they naturally would do in the wild. And then they learn all these skills and techniques. When we release them back in the wild, they almost always just revert right back into a wild state and there are leaps and bounds behind their, you know, their, their, I would say competition because in the wild, everything's a competition. So let's say you, you catch this bird, you release it in the wild three months later, you're out there and you're spinning your thing and whistle. Do you think it would come back? I like, see. I've heard stories. And, yeah, I've heard story. I don't. My heart would, I've heard be, I would cry, man, <laughs> if I'm like, no, it's you. Come back. Yeah. To me. These birds are, you know, a lot of people, including myself, get a little emotionally attached to these birds. But at the end of the day, they could care less about you. They are using you. They're the same way that a hawk is following a combine as it's cutting wheat and catching the rats that are being flushed from the combine. The same way they're following you through the woods while you pull vines and kick bushes and watch your dog go down a hole. They're using you to catch game, to fulfill their natural niche in in the wild. So it's not necessarily an emotional bond. And a lot of people and a lot of falconers as well they view their bird as like this emotional creature and they ampro, you know, I forgot the word. Well, they make the bird, they, they put human characteristics on the bird and, and it becomes this emotional thing. At the end of the day, if the bird thought it could kill me and eat me, it'd probably kill me. And eat me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, so they're very reptilian. They're not emotional. Some birds, they're fun. You know, when they're not the one, when a bird of prey is not hungry or doesn't have any desire to hunt, they can have interesting personalities where they want to kind of toy with you and fiddle with your fingers and kind of, you know, you know, uh, you know, preen and sit with you. And so they do have a, a personality to them. They're not like evil, just killing monsters, but it's, it's, um, it's more of a business relationship with okay. a bird of prey than it is this emotional thing that like, you know, I get my emotional, uh, kick out of my dog wanting to please me and running and, and the bird is just my weapon to catch the, the game. That doesn't mean okay. I don't respect the bird, obviously, but it's a different kind of thought process that goes behind the whole process. But my thought would be the training that you instilled in it in the time that you had it. Do you think if um, a week, a month, uh, a year of it being in the wild and and just you so happen to be in that field and you go, I think that's Sally, and you you right. do the recall of that bird, do you think it would have, in essence, lose it? Like if it hasn't used yeah. it, it's lose, losing it. Or if it were like, right. Good. hey, man, I'm freaking hungry. That's my guy. Like, you know, the circumstantial, or do you think it's something that you actually trained that it would be ingrained for time? Right. That's a, that's a great question. Great insight as a dog trainer, as yourself, how many dogs have different personalities, different, different little courses that they have one dog, one dog just goes that you're a professional trainer. They, some dogs just go out, boom, boom, natural, beautiful. Others just want, they just, they're doing it uh, just because you're basically, because you're, you're, you know, you're kind of training them to do it. And it's a fight the whole way. 
the birds are kind of similar. They all have different personalities. So I have heard anecdotal evidence of people, uh, you know, going out to a hunting field and their hawk that they let go three years ago joins their hunt with their new hawk. And, you know, and it doesn't necessarily come down, but chases together and doesn't show as much fear. So that I have heard of stories like that, okay. but it is kind of rare. There's no studies that were done on that. Um, for example, just for an example for the listeners, my hawk, all of my hawks, any hawk or falcon that is used in the sport of falconry, you are using their desire to eat to get them to chase and catch and kill things. So you're not starving the bird, which is a common misconception. That is completely false. Why would I starve an athlete that I need to do incredible things? So it makes no sense. So you want the bird to just be in a mindset where it wants to hunt and kill so that it can do what you're training it to do and what it naturally does in the wild. If it's too unhealthy and, and low in condition to chase and catch stuff, you're kind of defeating the whole purpose and you're not fulfilling your duty as a falconer. And that's not good for the bird, not good for you. It's not good for anybody. So, you know, so the bird of prey has to, um, it has to be in the best physical condition it can be to, to catch stuff. So in order to do that, um, you're kind of using its natural uh, desires to, to, to go after its natural quarry that it's caught in the past. So, so let's say, let's take a step back again. You get your bird, you catch a bird. Yep. I've, I've got my brand new red tail hawk juvenile. What do I do? We've got its feet tied up. We're going to like, what are the step-by-steps over the first few weeks? Like you had made a comment that it can happen so quickly, even a few short weeks, you're out hunting together. What are you doing yeah. in those few weeks to build trust, build the relationship of you're doing this and I'm doing this. I'm going to take you places and I'm going to kick up and flush you game. You know, how are you even, how, how do you do it? Okay. So good question. It's a long process. And the way that I always describe it to people is it's like the rungs on a ladder and each bar on the ladder each rung is a is a milestone in the training of the bird so when you bring the bird home you first go in, in my personal opinion the way i do it because there's many different ways to do it the same way i'm sure there's many different ways to skin a cat um you know there, there's just a million different ways to do it and dog training you can go down the rabbit hole and have debates for hours on how to train a dog or how to train a hawk so there's in your world there's probably debates in my world there's debates as well yeah. on how to do it the way i do it which finds which for me gets the best results is i take the bird into a darkened almost completely black room with just a little bit of light showing maybe just on my glove the bird is sitting on the glove with the jesses and the leash all tied off to the glove in a safe place where nothing bad can happen no day stimulus one. my son day one or, I mean, so so that's another debate is sometimes sometimes let them sit, you know, let them sit for a day and just sit there quietly and calmly and take in the noise, take in the oral view of what's going on. Their, their, their hearing is part of the manning process. They're getting used to children. They're getting used to the dog, your footsteps, different things, your whistle. There's, they're getting used to these things. So a lot of people and other falconers included, they don't necessarily – think of that aspect they think of the visual because like i discussed earlier 
they're visually stimulated. The hood blocks out the visual stimulus, so they become relatively calm. But the oral, you know, the, the hearing aspect of it is still a is still a, a a thing that you need to take into consideration. So sometimes I will let a bird sit for a day or two, especially if I feel its its chest, so the keel. So picture the breast of your duck that the breast that's on either side of that bone in the middle. That's what we call the keel. So you as a as a falconer, we can feel that. And you can feel how good of condition the bird is. You can feel how strong the pectoral muscles are or how much fat is around it. So if I get a bird that's very obviously overweight and in very good healthy condition, there's no need to try to get it to eat immediately because it's so uh, robust that there's, you know, there's no need to. So you can take a little bit of an extra time to let it sit and just listen to the stimulus around it. So then once that process is over, which is another, like I said, you could debate it one way or the other, you take the hood off the bird's head and you always keep a bloody piece of uh, meat or a, a carcass of a squirrel or a rabbit, something that your bird would normally recognize. And you keep that on your glove while the bird is standing on that same glove. And then you sit quietly, don't make eye contact with the bird wiggle your fingers gently and allow the bird to look down what's going on, seize the meat. If the bird is, is a, you know, is just a, each bird is different. Like each dog is different and they have a different personality. Sometimes others initially start eating and, and just start eating and everything's smooth and you let them eat as much as they want. Then you slide the hood gently back over their head, put them back on their perch and exit the room. Um, other birds take a day or two to bend down and actually start eating because they're, they're not hungry. They don't care. It doesn't matter. They're too weirded out by the situation. Each bird is different after that step eating. So that's rung number one, in my opinion, eating off of the glove in my presence. Uh, they may not necessarily know you're there because the light is so dark. That's rung number one. Rung number two is, is you're going to increase the light until the bird can, can clearly make out your face and your appearance. And then you're allowing the bird to see that and then still bend down and eat. That's kind of rung number two. Then after that's kind of a smooth, you know, situation, um, you can put the bird back on its perch, which it recognizes from its, 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 its century feet, feeling the perch. It recognizes that that's where it sits for most of the day while I'm at work. And it understands that that's a place of of not necessarily peace and quiet, but it's a safe place where nothing bad happens to it. So you can put the bird on the perch where it feels the perch texture and understands, okay, this is my perch, this is where I sit. And then you can offer that same food. I don't do a tidbit or a small piece of meat. I do the same size and I hold it about a foot out in front of the bird's face. And the bird can either choose to try to fly away from me which is fine. I just gently, you know, it's tied to the leash, you know, to my glove. So it's not going to hurt itself. I gently pick it up, put the hood back on its head, leave it alone, lex at the room, try again in an hour or two or the next day, depending on how robust the bird is and how full and heavy and fat the bird is. Then the bird eventually, after all these steps, the bird will eventually hop to the glove to that, to get that carcass or that piece of meat and eat from it. Then you could put the bird on back on the perch and then you hold it instead of 12 inches, you hold it 18 inches and you get the bird to hop 18 inches. And then you just continue to do that while simultaneously increasing the light and the visual stimulus around the bird while increasing it. So, you know, basically it's like in my, in my, you know, my quiet, my study, I let the bird hop, boom, 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 go, you know, to the length of the whole study till it's hopping, you know, five, six, seven feet across 
my study from a perch that's on my thing to the to my glove. Then I'll go into the living room where it's okay. It's never been there. And then sometimes the bird will shut down. You kind of have to start the feeding process all over again and allow the bird to sit and eat calmly in that new environment. So basically those are the, those are the rungs. And then you're doing it in the living room. Then you're doing it in your backyard. And then it's coming the full length of your yard to your glove to eat. Then you're going to a, your local park and you're having it fly all the way across the turf football field, a hundred yards to your glove instantly. So during that whole process, you're weighing the bird, you're putting it on a scale, you're recording its weight in grams or ounces, you're feeling its chest and its keel bone and its muscles to find out how fit it is, because you never want, like we discussed, you never want the bird to get too unhealthy. Um, and if a bird does show resistance and doesn't want to participate, and it's just a challenge and you have to get it very low in condition to get it to hop to the glove... Sometimes we will just release that bird, to be honest with you, because it's not, it's the bird is just clearly not game for this. Same thing for you with like training a retriever. Some of them are, you know, they just need to be a pet. They just need to be a house yep. pet. They're not made to jump in a freezing cold lake and swim out to a duck and swim it back. Some of them are just not made to work like that. So some yep. birds of prey, mm. they just don't want to be involved with this. They just never calm down. And those, sometimes we can push through it and get them to work with us and everything works out fine. And then other times I've, you know, heard of people just maybe releasing that bird back in the wild, filing the permit, saying this, you know, we release the bird back into the wild, whatever the case may be. But long story short, the bird is coming roughly a, in my thing. I like to do a hundred yards or, you know, 50 or 60 yards instantaneously when it's called to my glove. I record that weight. I record that physical condition with my fingers on the, on the keel bone and the muscles. And then at that point you can put a transmitter on the bird and release it, literally just take it and release it back into the wild. And the bird lands in a tree and then turns around and looks at you and it's like, okay, where's my reward to the glove. And then you kick a bush and a rabbit runs out or you pull a vine and a, a squirrel makes a, a break for it. And the bird goes, Oh shit. I know what that is. Boom. Goes right after it. And then the bird catches it, hopefully, and then it becomes this, the bird, you can almost see the bird like, oh, this is what we're doing now. I get it. And then it's like, oh, that dog that you've always had in the room with me and always in the living room and in the yard milling around. I just saw it go down a hole and I saw a rabbit shoot out of the other side of that hole and I caught it. The dog is my friend. The dog is, is, is helping me. You're helping me. This is, and then it's kind of, they, they take to it and it becomes this symbiotic you know, for lack of better, better word relationship where the bird is kind of this person is helping me catch stuff. And then you can build off of that. That's, so that's super like cool. the rungs of the ladder that gets you to catching wild game. So next question with that, when you catch a juvenile red tail hawk to this stage of releasing it on average, how long does that take? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's a case by case basis. And, um, I've had it, I've literally trapped a hawk, trained it through the process that we just discussed and went on our first hunt with in, in under a month, wow. you know, in, in under, under, um, probably like three weeks or so, three and a half weeks, depending on the condition of the bird. Um, wow. it also depends on the condition of the bird. So if the bird is very heavy and very robust and doesn't necessarily need to eat or care to eat. Um, then that can that can sh sh stretch out the whole training process or shorten it. Sometimes we trap a hawk that's desperate, like 
what the audience needs to understand is that these birds of prey only they 80 70 to 80 percent of them die before they even reach that first year of springtime where they can molt out their feathers so that's a huge so out of 100 birds only 20 are living so these sometimes we trap these birds and they're desperate and they're just starving they're they're theoretically they're dying because they can't catch anything they're not a good hunter they're just starving to sometimes you get a bird that's just like the minute you take the hood off of it and show it the food, it's just gorging itself and eating and eating and eating. And then you get it hopping and hopping. And then like the whole process is faster. If you get a good hunter that's fat and healthy and it's been catching everything it tries to catch, there's no big deal. Sometimes that bird will take a little bit longer because it doesn't necessarily need to eat or care to eat because it's, it's fat and it, it doesn't, it doesn't have a need to. So right. yeah, so, so sometimes I've had it. I, I had one bird in particular years ago that I had it out hunting within like three and a half weeks or so, roughly. Wow. Yeah. How many birds have you trained in your eighteen years? Um, I've never kept track. The state would know <laughs> if I called them and asked them for my all my uh, you know, my forms that I filled out and sent in. Um, I would probably say I did a, a new red tail hawk every year for probably fifteen of those years. Um, I've flown, uh, Merlins, Merlin Falcons, Peregrine Falcons, Goshawks, um, a number of different birds. So I would probably say probably 25, 20 birds or so, something like that. 25. So the Peregrine Falcon is the fastest bird. Sure is. Yep. So how, how did you get that one? You didn't catch that midair then. (laughs) <laughs> no, I didn't catch that one in midair. That one, uh, that one, Mid that flight. one required me. That, that cracked yeah. me up somehow, Kevin. That wasn't even that funny. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> I, I really got myself to. It's all that matters. Um, what? That's all there is. Be, yeah. Before we even do that, like, are oh. are all of these birds, uh, ones that you've trapped in juvenile stage, or have any of these been like an imprinted from a chick situation? Or is that, is that even, that was going to be my next question after this one, but go on. We're just on. Yeah. Point. Great questions, guys. Great questions. So, all right. So, uh, all of the birds that we trap from the wild and the birds that like, there are permits that you can get to climb a nest and remove a chick from the nest. There's a common misconception. There are all different kinds of rules. You can't just do this whenever you feel like it. There's all different kinds of rules. There has to be X amount of chicks in the nest. You can only pull one if there's more than that number. And it's if it's on a certain property, you can't pull it. If it's on this property, you can pull it. You have to submit the request to the state. It's very regulated. None of this is just like a, a willy-nilly, you know, do whatever you feel like doing. Um, but all the birds that we take from the wild are always either a juvenile or um, an Ias, which is another name for a young hawk or falcon. So they're all juvenile or, or, or very young. You're never allowed to use the adult for falcon. They're considered, like we discussed earlier, the 80, 70 to 80% of these birds that die, that 20% that lives out of that 20%, 70 to 80% of those don't make it to the next year, meaning two years. So out of those, those are the ones that are breeding. So if a bird has the skills and 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 wherewithal to survive to the point where it's breeding with a mate in the wild, those birds should stay that way. We should never interfere with them in any way. So we 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 are not allowed to touch those. Nor even if the government changed the rule and we're allowed to, I don't think guys would would uh, or girls would take those birds to use because it's just on. I just don't think it's ethical. I think that they should stay 
in the wild and continued to breed as a breeding population of, of raptors that made it to that thing. So to answer your question, yeah, they're all juveniles. They're all young birds. Um, they're all mentally young and they're still learning what's going on in the world. And so it, it just makes for a better, a better bird to use for falconry, in my opinion. So how many do you have at a time? Okay. Another good question. Your uh, each each license. So th- so that there's a, a there's a falconry license for the state. In that same license, there is a, an apprenticeship license, meaning I'm under the authority of my sponsor for two years. He oversees what I do. What I do. He re- he. At the end of the two years, he files a letter um, or a form to the state that. Uh, tells them if I'm either qualified or I'm not qualified. Let's say I get a hawk and I'm an idiot and I kill it or I'm abusive or I'm a freak and I paint its nails and I let it grab me by my, my face and I get off on it, whatever, you know, I'm just joking, but whatever. It's like, you can't like the, the, like there's somebody, that's what the beauty of falconry is. You can't just get your license and then just like disrespect while that like there's a there's somebody that's looking over you somebody that's qualified to look over your behavior and not allow anything bad to happen to that animal so if you're somebody that's not qualified that person the sponsor would fill out a permit saying this person's not qualified they can't have uh birds of prey i will not pass them on to their general class falconry license which a general class falconer each state obviously has their own rules so they can they can they can vary it from state to state I believe a general class falconer can have up to three birds of prey in their possession at one time. Master class falconers can have up to, I believe, five birds at a time uh, with a, subse- a subsequent uh, inspection to make sure that they're housed correctly. So we we always uh, yield to the state or the government, even though I hate the government, but they do a good job in uh, <laughs> in uh, you know in making sure that nothing bad or nefarious is going on with people are who are keeping wildlife and bird and rehabbers people who take baby fawns if a, if you know you find a stranded duckling you take it to what's called a rehab center those people are are doing great work for for wildlife as well but they're also subsequent to the same uh stringent rules to make sure that nothing nefarious is going on so yeah Very good. So, so there's three different there's three different tiers there's the apprentice the general and the master and which one are you Bro, come yeah. on! You have to ask that question. Come You're on, the extra master. <laughs> I'm a master. Uh, I'm a so, master so do you have five. no big deal? Do you? So do you have five? You max no, because out I'm on not. Birds? A, uh, no, no, I'm not a moron. Uh, <laughs> the amount of time that each bird's amount of time that each bird requires is very, very difficult to hunt and actively fly in a real world scenario. Each bird. So, I mean, the max amount of birds that I would fly would probably be three. Um, and that would be on a, uh, a rotation. So I'd fly one, one day, fly the next, the next day. I have flown multiple birds in the past. And basically I would take one out, catch something, put it away back in the truck, pull out the next one, catch something, put it back in the truck and go home. That doesn't always work out. It's not a gun. Sometimes the bird misses. Sometimes the bird doesn't catch it. So then sometimes you have to kind of cut the hunt short, put that bird away to take out the other bird that's ready to kill and hunt and allow that bird to, you know, get some, some, uh, you know, some airtime for lack of a better term, you know, in the, well, in the field chasing and hunting stuff. Yes. Yeah, so what is their cardio like? What, what, uh, you know, how, why couldn't it hunt for an hour or can it? And then is there things that you do to build 
cardio so that it can fly longer, faster, harder? Yeah, good question. So, uh, so theoretically, I could hunt my bird all day, and on like Saturdays and Sundays, I will. The issue that I'm mainly referring to in my initial, you know, what I just uh, described, is like an after the after work kind of scenario where I get home oh. from work, sun's going down, I grab one bird, grab two birds, go to the field. Hopefully, we catch something. If we don't catch something in like an hour, put it away, pull out the next bird. We have like an hour or 45 minutes of daylight. Hopefully, we catch something. If not, we go home. That's kind of the 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 thing. There are many different fitness techniques that we use. We use uh, restrained pursuits where the bird is on a long leash and and you um, pull, you know, you set up like a pulley system where you're pulling a rabbit carcass or a lure on the ground and the bird is chasing it and you're semi-restricting the chasing uh, so that it, it's working extra hard to get there. Um, another technique that we use, uh, and that's just to build fitness and they get a reward at the end. There's never any kind of um, uncomfortable behavior. Um, you know, they, they don't necessarily view it as any type of negative thing because it's just uh, whether they have to chase a duck that I flush 100 yards through the woods up into the sky over the canopy, catch it, come crashing down to the canopy, or it gets off the water and smacks it instantly and lands on the bank or lands in the water. They don't really know the difference between how difficult one or the other is. They just know the end result that they have to do to get there. So you can use their mental thought process to make them stronger, make them faster, make them more explosive. Um, another thing is I take a six-foot ladder in my yard, and I stand on the top of the six-foot ladder with my my gloved hand, and I'll put the bird on the ground and then call it all the way up off the ground, you know, roughly 10 feet straight up in a vertical you know, flap, 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 flap all the way up to get its reward, then throw a, a small piece of meat back down on the grass or the snow and we'll fly back down, grab that piece of meat and then do the same process over for as long as she'll allow. And that will build tremendous muscle and fitness in the birds. And there's many different things. We Falcons got guys will put a drone, you know, a thousand, two thousand feet up into the sky with a lure hanging from it. And the Falcon will circle circle and pump and pump and pump and pump and then grab the lure it has a release on it and they'll take the lure all the way back down to the ground and eat their reward there's many no different techniques you know for all different species of bird there's a guy in europe that makes what's called a bull x machine and they use it for uh, coursing dogs and racing dogs where basically he hits a remote and the thing goes like 70 miles an hour and the lurkers and dogs chase it full speed through a field with different turns and uh, that machine is also used for our birds of prey. So I can put a rabbit carcass on that, pull the trigger. It takes off going like 50 miles. You can set the you know the, the speed and allow it just to go fast enough where your bird can't really catch it, but it can chase it. And it can chase it for as long as you want. In the bird's mind, I'm hunting, I'm, ca I'm chasing. And yeah, then it's building fun. this muscle and this fitness. It's yeah. having fun. And then when it catches it, it gets its reward. So yeah. it's a win-win, you know? So Dude, yeah, there's many cool. different techniques. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. super cool. Are there any corrections involved in birds of prey training? No. The answer is no. No. So there's it's no all food based. Positive. All positive, all food based, using their Correct. natural instincts to get them to do what you want. Yeah. So basically, uh, yeah, we don't use any discipline. It's not a dog. It's not, uh, it's not like I discussed earlier. It's not necessarily a social animal that would, uh, that would take kindly to getting, you know, like a, like a dog 
it's used to a pack hierarchy. It's in its DNA to respond to a, a hierarchy of an alpha and to submit or to not submit, whatever the case may be. Birds of prey are not like that. Like I said, they're by themselves for most of the year. They're living on their own. So if your bird doesn't catch something and you just like smack it, like it, the bird's just going to be like, this guy's a psychopath. Uh, you know, yeah. he's hitting me for no reason. It, like, it will just do nothing. So it doesn't, it does not work. So there's no negative reinforcements. There are passive aggressive uh, techniques that we use. So if, for example, if I'm flying my bird and she's overweight and she's not chasing hard and she's being lazy and the rabbit's running right out in the open and she's not even trying to catch it. She's just kind of following it around and being lazy. I can just be like, okay, no problem, no discipline. I'm just going to gently pick you up, put you back in the box. We're going to go home. And then you're going to get a very, you're going to get a small meal so that the next day the bird's going to realize because in the wild, they would realize if I chase like that, I don't get fed. Uh, and then instead of starving to death, the bird will just wake up in the morning and be like, okay, I missed my opportunity to catch that rabbit yesterday. I have to catch every rabbit that appears in front of me. And this is not necessarily a technique that's used with wild birds of prey because they know they know the dangers of not catching something because most of them have probably been close to starving to death. So they know whenever a rabbit or a squirrel presents itself, they have to catch that squirrel or rabbit or whatever the prey item is. A bird like what I'm referring to where it's like raised from a, an imprint from a chick, it doesn't know danger. It doesn't know the wild that's out there it's never slept in the wild overnight and gotten smacked by an owl or or had a coyote try to come in and kill it it doesn't know any of these things so it's just like a baby so you kind of have to use you kind of have to as my buddy connor says you have to stimulate nature and get the bird to get a real world uh, consequence without necessarily allowing the bird to know that it came from you if that makes sense yeah when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Totally makes sense. Yeah. So I'm going to get into a couple bucket list questions. Um, what is the coolest game species that your hawk has harvested in your career? Okay, so I'm pretty boring, I guess. Uh, the coolest game species that I caught um, was probably... Uh, a porcupine, I guess, not really cool, <laughs> not really sporting. Uh, just the bird was a, the bird just kills. You know, when you instill the confidence into these birds, they think that they can catch anything, even if they normally wouldn't catch it in the wild. Um, and she, she, she toyed with a, she messed with a, uh, she messed with a porcupine upstate New York and got uh, quilled up pretty good. And then. Um, I wouldn't say we caught it. She kind of fought with it until it was wounded in the tree. And then the landowner came out and said, you want me to shoot that thing? And I said, well, it's kind of all messed up up there and bleeding. We might as well just do it. So he shot it and it fell out of the tree. So that's one, which is not necessarily a catch uh, because she got quilled up so bad. We had to like pull all the quills out, which I had pictures and, and stuff, which I can post, you know, when this airs, yeah. which would be pretty funny to put with the audio. Um, you know, cause these birds are out of their minds. I mean, they, like I said, 70 to 80% of them die. They think they can do anything. They go after the wrong game species. 
they get killed, they get wounded. I mean, my bird, if it was in the wild in, in Siberia or even the northern Gothawks in, in upstate New York and Maine and Vermont, uh, you know, those birds are those birds if they go after a porcupine, they get cooled up like that. They're done. I mean, yeah. they're gonna they're gonna get infected, their feet are gonna swell up, they're not gonna be able to hunt, they're gonna they're gonna die a miserable death, starving to death, walking around on the ground until some animal grabs them and kills them, or they just they just, you know, just suffer to death. So our birds get to learn. And then I bet you, <laughs> you know, I bet you guys could imagine that after my bird had that experience with getting quilled up in the pain and, and, you know, she never went after another porcupine after that, you know, cause she's like, that thing has, the thing you know, and it's the same, it's the same exact thing. So, um, yeah. yeah. So, so I guess the porcupine was pretty cool. Um, and then I caught a, a, um, a, a Drake widgeon. Oh, uh, nice. La- two years ago, which was pretty cool because I, I never, you know, I never seen one up close like that. And mm-hmm. it was the same swamp that we discussed earlier. It's the same exact swamp and she caught it. And I ended up waiting out with my waiters again. Actually, I didn't have my waiters on. I was just in my booth. And, uh, <laughs> and she caught, she caught a, a Drake widgeon and it was such a beautiful bird. I mean, it was just such a yeah. beautiful looking, beautiful looking bird. And, uh, it was a surprise cause it was under the water and I walked up to her and she's floating. And I just said, I said, what is that? That's crazy. Um, so nothing exciting. You know, people have caught mink. How about you grouse? Know, uh, grouse. There's many people in the northern uh, the northern regions that target grouse with pointing dogs, and they're successful, and they catch a lot of them. Um, and I'm jealous because that's – I want to catch one. Um, yeah. And, yeah, they're a super cool game species. Uh, I think a gentleman caught a, a, a white – I believe it's a ptarmigan – yeah, from like up in Alaska, he catches white ptarmigans, white snowshoe hares. Yep. Uh, I mean, anything that's on the menu, these birds can catch, and they do catch in the wild without anybody seeing, which is amazing. Um, but for me, I'm just more of a pedestrian, and I just catch like the run of the mill rabbit, squirrels, ducks, and various subspecies of ducks and stuff like that. You know? Do you have to follow the? I'm assuming you still have to follow the state laws of of yeah. hunting. So like it's not duck season, but your hawk grabs a duck. Are you shit out of luck or are you okay? Cause yeah, good question. That's a great question. Um, yeah. So it, 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 we have a law in the state that the falconers back in the day and the state had these discussions and sit downs and they said, listen, sometimes the birds catch things they're not supposed to. I mean, just because you can't catch a black duck out of season, that doesn't mean that a peregrine falcon is not catching one in the middle of the summer to feed its chicks. We can't necessarily control. We can mitigate against these things, but there's, we can't necessarily control what they catch. Um, so we have a law, and each state adopted that law, which is called the let it lay law or let it lie, meaning if my bird – actually, yeah, that's a good – that just, that just reminded me of a story. I had a red hawk catch a great blue heron, even though it's not a game species. Um, so for example, in that, in that situation, this bird was a a giant, uh, in terms of grams, it was a 1500 plus gram female red tail, which is pretty much as big as they get. She grabbed this great blue heron by its head as it flushed off of the stream underneath her in a tree. And she just, for whatever reason, couldn't help herself and just grabbed it. By the time I got there, she mangled its head up so bad with her feet, punching holes in it that, uh, I had to, uh, euthanize it and just kill it. Um, and then I called my buddy, who's a lawyer, who is a falconer as well. And and he informed me that there is, and I was a kid at this time, and she he informed me that there is a law 
that is called the let it lie law. And you can let your bird eat from it. Like as if she was in the wild, just like any other wild bird of prey would do, but you cannot possess the carcass and you have to leave the carcass where it lies in the field and leave the field without the carcass. If you saw so much as pick it up off the ground and a game warden is present, you have now taken possession of it and you are now in violation and you will get, you know, fined or whatever the case may be the same exact as if you, you know, shot a duck at a season, uh, you know, just for fun. It'd be the same exact penalty. Gotcha. Um, Makes sense. Yeah. But, and obviously, obviously if you're targeting them and it's becoming a habitual thing and, uh, you know, somebody were to report you or catch you, it'd just be, you'd be charged as if you were poaching. Same exact gotcha. concept. How about yep. uh, a bucket list species that you would like to target with your bird? Yeah. So bucket list species without even hesitation is a rough grouse from either upstate New York, whenever the season, you know, if they have a season or whatever, cause I know it goes let's up and down. Go. Uh, we can make that happen, seasons, buddy. Yep. Really? This let's season. go. You got dogs though. That's yeah. the problem. I yeah. got two right behind me. Yeah. They're sleeping on Kevin's bed. They're pointing. Look dogs. At them. They're, what do on. you got? You got setters or what? Yeah, two English setters, and they're ready to go. Oh, let's go! All right, fine. I let's bet you're talking yeah, to pick up Andy, list. though. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Andy's not very big; she might be taken away. <laughs> no, she's used to little dogs. Obviously, I got the little the little dachshund here, and these birds will get used to it. Um, so, a bucket list is a rough grouse with a with a, a North American goshawk, which is their natural prey species in the wild. So I've always wanted to catch one in the snow in the winter, which I think would be cool, and then uh, a snowshoe hare. Which if we I, also if I could have kill up those, here, buddy. Yes. If I could kill both of those, I would be like, I, okay, you can kill me. You can just kill me in the field and just let a let an animal let it lie. Because I'm good. Let, <laughs> let it lie. Baby. Let me lie. <laughs> let it lie. Let me well, lie. Well, those are two yeah, things that we might be able yeah. to help you out with. Uh so so we'll reconnect as grouse season comes. Um Let's that would be it. really fun. That would be a really be pretty cool deal we, to do. So that would be epic. We uh we we've talked quite a bit about falcons, hawks no owls right so maybe i'm the dumb guy where like that's totally different i don't know uh is there a reason why not an owl there's a great question that's a great question they are okay so they're okay so answer your question there has been multiple people that have used them to hunt and catch game Uh, a great horned owl that we have in the in, in america that that bird of prey can kill just about anything in the forest there was a study there was a, yeah, that sounds by awesome. a guy that yeah i mean they're all you would think right they can kill anything they can kill your hawk they can kill a raccoon they can kill a coyote they can kill a fox they can kill a possum they can kill just about anything their feet are so strong the problem is that like we discussed falconry is using their natural uh instincts and desires for the sport to catch things if i flush a rabbit and it's running you know, 20 miles an hour or, you know, 15 miles an hour through the field. That's not fulfilling the, the owl's niche in the wild, in the wild. The the owl's niche in the wild is surprise attack, sneak attack, just surprising its prey with, with super quiet, agile movements, and then just catching it by surprise. My hawk is stimulated by movement and chasing. So when the rabbit's running, it naturally just wants to chase it and catch it. Owls want to kind of surprise things. So, but there has been people that would that get an owl, they train it, they go out into the wild that night with a headlamp or whatever the case may be, 
and they, you know, they work the brush, they pull vines, whatever the case may be, and a rabbit runs out and they catch a rabbit. I mean, a woman a couple of years ago called a possum accidentally. Um, another person called a skunk. My buddy, his his would ca- his love to catch cats for whatever he it would just catch <laughs> house cats all the time in these fields because they'd be prowling looking for rabbits and then the bird would just target the the cats and just crush their skulls. Uh, but that wasn't an uh, that wasn't a great horned owl. That was a European eagle owl, um, and uh, they are killing machines that can kill just about anything. The issue is that you kind of have to play into their strength, which is at night, and you don't necessarily want to flush things so that it's running. You kind of want to just let the bird uh, surprise attack things, which would stimulate it a lot more than chasing. Even though they're capable of chasing, it's not necessarily their go-to maneuver for acquiring right. prey. So it's more of a challenge to answer your question. So that more of a sense. challenge for a master falconer, huh? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a challenge that I don't have any desire to, uh, to climb. So. All right. So now <laughs> back, back to my bucket list questions. So the bir- let's, I want to hear the list of birds of prey that you've raised, you know, trained and, and had, um, and then a bucket list bird of prey that someday you would like to train and have. Okay. Um, I have raised uh, from from chicks multiple goshawks, which we discussed earlier. Different subspecies from all over the world. Uh, multiple red-tailed hawks, peregrine falcons, merlins. I flew a Cooper's hawk, um, which was not necessarily successful. I released it; it was just out of its mind, and I didn't have the skills to to get it to do what I needed to do. So I fattened it up and released it. Um. I flew a Jeer Falcon, which is a white falcon from the Arctic. Um, flew that for, you know, I didn't necessarily hunt it. I just, I flew it um, just recreationally for fun. Um, and in terms of a, of a species that I would, I would die to fly, I've flown pretty much all the subspecies of goshawks, all the white ones, all the, uh, you know, all the species that are readily available. There is a species from South Africa called the African, um, the African um, uh, African sparrowhawk, black sparrowhawk, that is like a, a goshawk that's basically black, a little bit different body structure, and they're from South Africa, and they are super cool birds. I'd love to fly one of those. Um, but other than that, uh, the goshawk, which I've been currently flying, is a very difficult bird to fly. So I kind of, um, I kind of have, um, you know, my hands my hands full with those mastering flying one of those. And when I fly those, I've flown about six of them already, um, over my, over the years. And, uh, I still feel like I'm learning because they're a complicated bird to fly. They have the most, uh, athletic output of any, uh, bird of prey used in falconry. They are the most athletic. They can catch anything from a goose down to a starling. That's how athletic they are. Um, but they have a kind of a more of a challenging personality to work with. Um, so I, 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 uh, I want to master those birds before I would move on to something else, just to be honest, you know? Yeah, no, that's super cool. So how are you getting these birds from like, how would you get one from South Africa? And then could it, would you then have to own that quote unquote, own that bird forever? Or could that be released into central New York or like Siberia or wherever? Good question. Yeah. So no, I, I would never. So even the bird I have now, the white one that you see in the videos, the, that bird 
bird I would never release back in the wild. An imprinted bird of prey, meaning it was taken as an ayas, meaning it was taken as a chick, a small little downy chick, whether it's from the wild or it's captive bred, you would never release that bird back in the wild because part of the training process and the whole a dynamic of the training is that the bird is imprinting on you mm-hmm. and it thinks it's some somewhat, it thinks it's a human. So you wouldn't just release that bird. Um, so the African sparrowhawks, those things were brought into the country years ago. Nobody could get them to breed. They all died except for a few, I believe, and those are not producing any eggs. So it would be like a, you know, like a $15,000 bird that would have to be imported into the country, uh, all kinds of red tape. And then you'd have to go through the process of either training it or, um, you know, or getting a breeder to breed them and then taking a chick from that breeding. So it's a, it's a, it, I probably don't think it would happen for multiple, multiple years, 10, 20, 15 years, the whole process. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a gotcha. huge, it's a huge ordeal. You can't just go to South Africa and get a bird. It would be a, right. no be doubt. a nightmare. So how did you get the one from Siberia? So luckily we have, uh, uh, men and women in the country that breed all different subspecies of falcons, hawks, owls, eagles in the United States. So we have pure bred birds of prey from these different sub, you know, from different continents and subspecies. And uh, yeah, they breed them to make money. Of course, they're not cheap, but it is nice that we have these genetic, um, you know, stock in our country. So if something were to happen where you know, they're wiped out in another country, we could theoretically breed them and put them back into that same country's ecosystem and repopulate. So yeah, so there's a bunch of people that have brought in Siberian goshawks from Russia and Finland and, you know, the Finnish goshawks, the Russian goshawks, the beautyoid subspecies. They brought them into the country. Um, you know, obviously they do it to make money, but it becomes a, uh, a blessing to all of us and to the world if we have an issue where we need to repopulate these birds. So that bird was captive bred by a, a guy in Nevada, um, and he breeds beautiful birds. And um, and uh, and yeah, they're purebred from that country, and he has the licensing to do that. And the state is cool. obviously involved. Yeah. So so in how many do you have here? right? Sorry, is it dark in here? No, you're good. How many do you have okay. right now? Then I just have I just have the one bird right now. Okay. Yeah, I just have I just have one one bird right now. How old is she? She's about. Uh, this is her third year. So this is her third year. And this is the one we can't yeah. release into the wild. So how long is she? No. How long is her life? As long as as long as she survives. These birds, uh, like I said, seventy to eighty percent, they find different ways to kill themselves. I've lost two in the field to hunting accidents. One got electrocuted last year on a power line. Uh, which is very unfortunate, which happens to thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of birds of prey throughout the country getting electrocuted. And then I had one hit a window, which is also a very common uh, occurrence of death for birds of prey. And those are the two birds that died in the field. So yeah, this bird, I would, I would just be happy to fly this bird for as long as I could fly her um, with no interruptions. You know, what is their normal life expectancy? No injuries, uh, no nothing. The- yeah, no injuries. I mean, they could they could live for probably close to 15, 20 years a goshawk. Red tail hawks live for, like I said, some a gentleman that I know has been flying his for almost 30 years. Wow. Um, they can live for quite a while without um, you know, without interruption or, or anything like that. That's really cool. Well, cool, man. Yeah. Hey, listen. Anything uh, that I haven't asked you 
that you feel like I missed out on uh, that you want to talk about? Not necessarily, but it's not enough really to get into in this podcast, but we could go down the rabbit hole of catching ducks with my bird of pro- with my hawk and setting up each individual slip, you know, or flush and the yeah. way that I use them to catch and the way that each different duck flushes. But we could we could have another episode if you wanted. No big deal. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, we when, totally you come grouse hunt, dude. when you come up and grouse hunt with us, I mean, if you're only three hours away, we could legit put that yeah, together. Yeah, let's go. Have you up for a weekend and let it rip, man. That would be a blast. Let's do it. I'd be so down. Let's do it. Then we'll do one in person. We'll talk all about the hunt and flushing ducks with this. We'll we'll go hunt ducks with your your freaking hawk too, man. Let's Let's do it, man. I love ducks. Let's do it. I'm down. All right. So tell everybody if they haven't already seen your videos, where they can find you on Instagram, YouTube, et cetera. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Okay. So all my Instagram handles are this. All my social media handles are the same. Uh, it's NJ, like New Jersey underscore falconry. If you just type in NJ falconry, something of mine will usually pop up. Um, you know, I'm not the biggest name out there, but if you want to see my videos, I, 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 there's a lot of falconers that promote just the beauty of the birds and, and them. Um, I don't know if it cut out. Can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Can everybody hear me? Okay. Yeah, so yeah. there's, uh, my page, I like to promote, and that's why I don't have so many followers as some other people. I like to promote the birds doing what they do, which is hunting and catching wild quarry in the field in a natural setting, un- un- unhindered by me, just doing what they would naturally do in the wild. And that's what I enjoy posting. And um, and yeah, so that's like all I post. I catch ducks, rabbits, squirrels. And, and the, I mean, just the amazing flights that these birds do and the athletic performance that they put on is just, it's, in my opinion, it's, it's amazing to watch. Um, and yeah, if you want to check it out, give me a follow and uh, that's it. Yeah. And Happy to be here. And, and if there's anyone that wants to get into this, how would they go about finding a sponsor or a mentor to fulfill their dream of, of becoming a falconer? Yep. My most common question I get on social media, and that's my most common question. And I always tell everybody the same thing. Reach out to your local fish and wildlife or, or DNR and ask them to speak with whoever's in charge of the falconry program in your state. Every state has one and ask them what's required in that state and then jump through the hoops or say, screw this. I'm not doing that. So it's Very up to cool. you. But Very that's cool, how that, those are the steps. Yep. Casey, thanks for joining us this evening. I enjoyed getting to know you and I enjoyed listening to your passion about the falconry and everything you do with your birds. So thanks so much. Everybody check them out on Instagram and YouTube and enjoy the ride. I sure did. Uh, Until next time, thanks for tuning in. We appreciate everybody's support and we'll see you in the next episode. Hey, do me a solid. If you enjoy the show, if you enjoy our Instagram, if we've helped you at all, join patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. If you do it before September of 2023, you're going to enter to win a hunt with me and Kevin and a bunch of other Patreon members down in Missouri. We're going to smack some ducks, have some fun, do a seminar with our dogs and have a great time. But jump into patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. Links in the description and join the community that helps me help you help your dog.
Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.